Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. you got a Bible, open it with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're continuing in our series on this morning in the book of Revelation in the seven churches. Uh, this is the next to last church, uh, so our series is winding down, uh, but I pray that you guys have been growing through this series, and I pray that you, you have a, a whole new understanding of what it means to be a Christian and a believer in the world that we live in. And so today we're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 uh, in our sermon series called Taking the Church Back. So, so let's, let's read real loud and real big together, starting at verse 7. Ready, read. Louder. Louder. Y'all losing it. Jesus. Come on. Amen. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we just, we just want to honor you today, God, and just say thank you that we can come and share your word together and that we can have fellowship uh, with one another. Lord, I pray today that you would uh, work in our hearts and our minds to change us and transform us and make us more like Jesus. Um, Lord, strengthen our faith this morning. Uh, give us a proper and better understanding of who you are and what you called us to do and who you called us to be. And so, Lord, I just pray today that you would Help us to grow in our faith today. To that person today who's not a Christian, maybe they're in church and they're not a follower of Jesus, Lord, um, I pray that you would just, just compel their hearts um, to hear the good news and receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you today. We, we honor you and we praise you for who you are today. Bless our time together in your word. In Christ's name we pray. And the people of God said amen. 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 Uh, you may be seated in the Lord's presence from the sermon series, Taking Back the Church. My sermon title this morning is, When God Opens a Door. When God Opens a Door. What, what do you think about when you think about the city of Philadelphia? What, what do you think about when you think about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Uh, may, maybe, maybe you're a little old school, and you think music when you think about Philadelphia. Maybe, maybe you, you're real old school and you, you think about Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday, one of the greatest singers ever, is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Maybe you're not that old school. Maybe you're a little old school and a little new school. Maybe, maybe you think about Patti LaBelle when you think about 
Philadelphia. Maybe if like me, you think about the maybe maybe you think about Philadelphia sound and the OJs if you if you're like me. Or, or maybe, maybe you're modern, maybe you're into pop music, and maybe, maybe you think about pink when you think about Philadelphia. Or maybe you think about the new Michael Jackson, Taylor Swift, when you think about Philadelphia, although she's from, from, from West Reading, Philadelphia, which is like an hour away. Or, or maybe you grew up in the 90s like me and you think about boys to men. If you ain't grew up in the 90s and you didn't live through the boys to men era, you don't really know nothing. You, you, you don't know nothing about Motown Philly back again. You don't, you don't know nothing if you weren't alive when boys to men came on TV. You, you don't know nothing about singing unless you live through the era of boys to men. Well, well, maybe you don't think about music at all. Maybe when you think about Philly, you think about sports. Maybe you think about the Eagles. Maybe you think about the, the Philadelphia Phillies if you're into baseball. But I would venture to say most of us, when we think about Philly sports, we think about basketball. See, I'm going to tell you how, how I know that you're new school. If you think about Joel Embiid, you're new school, right? But, right, right. And, uh, and maybe you, you, you're still a little new school if you think about my, my favorite basketball player of all time, uh, the, the great Allen Iverson. Maybe that's what you think about when you think about Philadelphia and you think about sports. Sports, but but I'm I'm a little old school, so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go 80s on you. Uh, I, I grew up uh, with a love for NBA basketball, and, and and before there was MJ, there was Dr. J, right? And, and, and so if you you want to know who your favorite player, and I hope your favorite player is MJ and not the other guy who claims to be the goat. If your favorite player is MJ, that'll hit you on Tuesday. If your your favorite player is MJ, MJ's favorite player was Dr. J. That's what I think about when I think about Philly sports. But if I'm being honest, I don't just think about Philly real sports. I think about Philly's movie history and sports. There's one movie that stands out that towers above the rest, that, that sets its set, it sets its scene in, in Philadelphia. And I, I'm talking about the, the 1976 legendary movie series called Rocky. Rocky stars Sylvester Stallone, and it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest underdog movie in movie history. The the Rocky franchise was so successful that it had six sequels, and it was reborn again in 2015 with the Creed franchise. Get your mind right. Spoiler, spoiler alert if you hadn't seen Rocky. It came out in 1976, so if you hadn't seen it, you're probably never going to see it. But Rocky chronicles a journeyman boxer who has been confined to fighting in local gyms, and he hadn't beat anybody of worth. Matter of fact, if you study Rocky, you, you know that Rocky's full-time job wasn't even a boxer. When the movie starts out, Rocky actually works as a loan collector in Philadelphia for a loan shark. But, but the plot of the movie is that there's a fortunate event that happens where a door opens for him to fight the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed. Not that Creed, the real Creed. And this would be okay, a regular movie, nothing special, if this was a match of equals. But 
but it's not. This is what makes Rocky special, and this is what makes the movie so, so crazy. There are a few reasons why this premise of Rocky fighting Apollo Creed is absolutely crazy. Number one, Rocky had lost several fights. Apollo Creed was undefeated. Rocky was this slow-footed southpaw who had poor defense, but Apollo Creed was a skilled technician in the ring. Apollo was six foot two, 200 and 220 pounds of nothing but muscle. Rocky was five foot nothing and barely 200 pounds soaking wet. And if you just take a look, there's no reason to believe that Rocky wouldn't get destroyed in the ring. Even Rocky knew this. In the last scene before the climax of the movie, the fight, Rocky comes home and in a bit of a despondent and dejected attitude, he tells Adrian, (laughs) his love interest in the movie, that he knows that he can't win the fight. He actually says to his girl, I can't beat him. I ain't even in this guy's league. It's my best Philly accent. Thank you. He says, it really don't matter if I lose the fight. And Rocky has an epiphany right before he fights. And Rocky, for us, transforms what it means to actually be victorious. Right there on the bed, he says to Adrian, all I want to do is go the distance. When the bell rings, I just want to be standing. That's not just true for Rocky. That should be true for us, too. That was definitely true for the church in Philadelphia. Let me give you some background on the church in Philadelphia. They were located in Asia Minor in the the modern Turkish city of Al-Shahar. Philadelphia was founded by King Adelus II, who they call Philadelphus, which meant brotherly love. He was known to have a deep affection and love for his brother. Hence, it became known as the city of brotherly love. This area in Asia Minor was, was an area of wine growth and wine production. Some of y'all would have loved to live in Philadelphia. It was the center of worship of the goddess Dionysus, who was the goddess of wine and fertility. And so it, it, it also, unfortunately, was located along a dangerous fault line. And if you know anything about fault lines, fault lines is typically where hurricanes take place. And so this is where Philadelphia is located, on a, on a fault line. And so earthquakes hit Philadelphia time and time and time again. It kept destroying the city over and over, so much so that they struggled with having stability. And out of the seven, out of the uh, two of the seven churches, out of the seven churches, actually, it is the smallest. It's the smallest church, and it's the youngest church. And it's probably considered the most insignificant church. Here's what's what's even more interesting. This church was only one out of two of the seven, one out of two of the seven, 
to only receive a, condemn, a, a, a commendation from the Lord, right? right. If we read through five of the seven received some sort of condemnation, but only two didn't receive a, con- a condemnation, but they only received a commendation, and Philadelphia is one of them. God, God has nothing bad to say about the church at Philadelphia. It doesn't mean that they didn't have challenges. It just means that their faithfulness surpassed whatever challenges they faced. This is a small and seemingly insignificant church, and Jesus has the most to say to them about one thing, their faithfulness. And what we'll learn in this church, and I hope we learn this, that Jesus is not impressed with size, whether large or small. He's not impressed with the size of a church's budget. He's not impressed with the church's building. What God is impressed with, and don't ever forget this, is faithfulness. And so what this means for us is that we have to let God transform and redefine for us what it means to be successful in life and in ministry. God doesn't deem dollars and cents as success. He deems faithfulness as success. And so we'll see three things that Jesus does for the church. Three things that he does for this faithful church. Number one, we'll see that God opens doors for the faithful. God opens doors for the faithful. Number two, God preserves the faithful. And number three, God rewards the faithful. And if we look at the first two verses, seven and eight, it says the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one will open. And here's what he's trying to say. I want to say this to you at the outset. Not everybody that opens a door for you is a door that you need to walk through. Not, not every door is a God door, and not every opportunity is a God opportunity. We need to use Scripture and biblical wisdom in determining what doors we need to walk through. It matters who opens the doors for you, but, but he clears this up at the outset that this is a door that you can walk through, and he says that he is, he is the, the holy one, meaning he is set apart. He is the true one. That means that he is trustworthy. He is reliable. You can trust him. It also says, it introduces to us this idea of keys. It says that he has the keys of David. Now, the the idea of keys is not the first time that this is mentioned in the book of Revelation. If we go back to the first chapter in verse 18, it says that Jesus has the keys to death and Hades, meaning that Jesus has defeated death through the resurrection. And now that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has the keys to death. But if he has the keys of death, that also means that he has the keys to eternal life. And so with that being said, if he has the authority uh, uh, over who, who dies and authority over death, then that means he also has the authority to grant life. And so this reference to a key of David for your understanding comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And the idea there is that this person who would look, it looked forward to this, this Davidic Messiah who would come and that Davidic Messiah had the responsibility and the authority to grant or deny access to the kingdom of God. This person determined who got in and who got out. There was no higher authority to appeal to to enter into the kingdom of God. He decided who got in. He decided who didn't get in. 
the one who had the key of David not only decided who got in and who, 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 who was shut out, he also had the authority to dispense, to dispense the resources of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, I got the keys to the kingdom. I alone am the one who can close doors, but I'm also the one who can open doors for you. And here's why there's good news for you on today. When Jesus opens a door for you, no man can shut it. He says, not only do I have the authority to open doors, I also have unlimited resources at my disposal to disperse to you after you walk through the doors that I've opened for you. Meaning, if God opens a door for you, God will supply your needs when you get behind that open door. And so I, I want to I wanna do some detoxing real quick before we talk about these open doors, because I know where your mind is going. I, I know in our TikTok generation that when you hear open doors, you automatically thinking about your next level. You're thinking about your job. You're thinking about your finances. You're thinking about your career. You're thinking about your education. But, well, let me, let, me, let me put this thing in its proper context. There are two interpretations of this open door. Pay attention to this. There are two interpretations of this open door. I've heard both of them. I read and studied both of them. There are two interpretations, and I'm not willing to settle on either. I think it's both of them. The number one interpretation of this open door for all my note takers is that, that some believe that this open door is access to God through our relationship with Jesus. That makes sense. Some believe that this is access to God through our relationship with Jesus, that Jesus has opened a door for us. He has opened a door for us and made a way for us to have relationship with the living God. That's number one. That's number one interpretation. The second interpretation is that this is ministry opportunity that is being provided, that, that God or Jesus has opened the door for ministry opportunity or for missional living. And so the first thing makes sense to me because Jesus is the one who opens the door to a relationship with God. He is the way of salvation. You know John 14 and 6 where Jesus says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through who? Through me. He also says in John 10 and 7, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and he shall go in and out and find pasture. I am the door that you come through. So so that makes sense to me because it's true that Jesus is the way to God. The second interpretation is that this is an opportunity for ministry to do the work of the Lord, to, to live on mission, to, to, to advance the purpose and the mission of God to help or to aid in bringing people into the family of God. And so he, here's what I want to do. I want to I detox us and give us the right perspective on the opportunities and open doors that come before us. That, that, that I want you to learn today that, that, that God only opened doors for you and gives you favor so that, he can, so that you can leverage it for his kingdom. That, that God doesn't give you favor for you so you can flex but God gives you favor so that you can leverage it for the kingdom of God. Ooh, y'all didn't say nothing. God only gives us favor so that we can use it for his glory. This is about the glory of God, not self-exaltation. I'm going to prove it to you. So, so I'm going to run through a couple of scriptures. We're not going to exegete these scriptures. We're just going to run through these scriptures. So, so all my note takers, I want you to write these down. We're going to, we're going to create this, this theme of open doors in the New Testament that we're going to look at. First scripture, Acts 14, 27. Here's what Luke says. After they arrived and, and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them 
and that he had did what? Did what? He opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Here's what Paul says. Because a wide door for effective ministry has what? Open for me, yet many oppose me. Here's what Paul says in the second letter to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 2 and 12. Here's what Paul says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even the Lord did what? Open a door for me. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus and said, I said goodbye to them and left from Macedonia. Colossians, two, Colossians 4, 2 to 3. Here's what Paul says. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may what? Open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am changed. So it seems to me that the open door is a call for believers to live on mission. That maybe God is providing opportunities for us so that we can fulfill the Great Commission. Let me, let, me, let me take it a step further. Or maybe when we pray for open doors, we're not praying so that God would make our name great, so that we can make his name great. I have a question to ask you today. When was the last time you prayed that God would open a door for you so that you can do his will and not yours? When was the last time you prayed, God, promote me for your glory? Or was it God give me this promotion because I'm, I'm, I'm dissatisfied with where I am? God bless me financially so I can get out of debt, period. Let me help you with that sentence structure. God bless me so I can get out of debt, comma, so that I can leverage my resources for your kingdom, period. Am I here by myself today? Am I? Okay. We must let the Lord transform our thinking about open doors, not as an, an, a, not as an opportunity for self-exaltation, but for Christ's glorification. And so you, you're thinking, oh, ministry opportunity, no, that's, for the, that, that's for church people. That's for the people that, that serve me when I come to the church. That's for the people that are on stage singing. That's for people who are greeting at the door. That's for the people that are working at the information stand in the lobby. That's for people in the back doing children's ministry. That's for the ushers. That's for the AV people. That's for the people who sit up and tear down during service. That's for the preacher. That's for those people. That's not for me. Let me tell you something. Ministry is not what happens at church. Ministry is the life of a Christian. Ministry is not for professionals. It is for those who have professed the name of Christ. We must see favor as something to be be leveraged for the advance of the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. If not, we will constantly struggle with feeling of discontent and dissatisfaction with our present situation. Let me help you. Until you see your job slash career, whatever you want to call it this week, for what it really is, you will never experience genuine joy. Because you see it as a means for you to get something. And God sees it as a means for you to give something. 
you don't just serve at church. You serve wherever you at. God, missionaries are not just people who go overseas. You can walk outside in your neighborhood or apartment community in Orlando and trip over an unsaved person. I'm not neglecting overseas missions. I'm just saying you don't have to wait to go to Ecuador to live on mission. You can live on mission right here. And so what this does is it it redeems and transforms the way we see work. Before the fall happened and everything was perfect in the garden, God still had Adam doing a job. So know what that tells me? That work is not bad. That work is actually good. It is something that God ordained and created. It is hard because of what happened after the fall. But what we're trying to do as we work is we are working our way backwards and undoing what the curse of the fall has done. And we are setting things right, not just how we pray, but how we approach our profession. How you work matters. Let me make it simple for y'all. I do this all the time. I've been doing this for years because I know my people. Here's how you can live on mission. Number one, you can show up to work on time. You can do your best no matter how monotonous it feels to you. You can redeem your work no matter how minuscule and uneventful you think it is. Even the most, the thing that you consider the most purposeless is purposeful when you've surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God can use your work right where you are, but it will be hard. That's a part of the curse. That's a part of the fall that happened. But it's not to say that we don't, we don't somehow redeem our thinking of how we approach our jobs because we're doing it not for paycheck, but we're doing it for the glory of God. And so it's not to say that we don't strive to put ourselves in better position, but why we strive to put ourselves in a better position is the main question. Our why is so that we can be salt and light. Our why is so that we can shine the light of the gospel in a dark world. Our why is through our work and witness, Christ can draw men to himself. There should be something radically and fundamentally different about the way you as a believer approach your day-to-day life than those who don't know Jesus. I'm going to take it this far. You should be the hardest working person at your job. Because your purpose for work has been redeemed. And because of the way that they approached their life, the church in Philadelphia had a door open for them. He that is faithful over the little will be made ruler over, over, over much. But you want the elevation. But you despise the small. It's not how it works in the kingdom of God. You don't do less and get better, better. That's not how that works. You treat wherever you are right now like it's your dream job. 
I know this is a tough pill for you to swallow. You looking at your resume every day. Like one person hit me on LinkedIn, I'm out of this joint. I get it. But while you're there, God expects you to be faithful. They understood the assignment. They understood the assignment. And the reason why God opens a door for them is very perplexing. Here's, how he's, here's why he says he opens a door for them. This is crazy. I opened a door for you because you have but little power. I opened the door for you because you're weak. I opened the door for you because you're rocky. Five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing. I opened the door for you because you're small. This, this church is really small in comparison to the broader culture outside of the church. And, and seemingly, if you just look at them on, on the hoof, on the outside, if you just look at their exterior, they don't look like much from a worldly perspective. If you look at them, just they look like small and insignificant. And he says, here's the key, because you have little power, because you can't open the door for yourself, I'm going to open it for you. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like salvation. No matter how strong you look or feel, you can't open the door to salvation. God had to do that for you. And here's what he's saying. You can't open opportunities for yourself. You can't open doors for yourself. You're too weak. And here's what I love. There's a blessing in being too weak. There is inherent Blessing and Christian weakness. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me help you. You know what your favorite scripture is if you played any kind of sports or you were about to do the spelling bee or you were in the debate club or you were in the whatever club or you were at the glee club or a chorus and you couldn't do something and it was really hard or you had to learn a speech. You know what scripture you always quoted? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> you only say that if you recognize you're too weak. Let, let's read some scriptures. He, he, here's, what, here's what Peter said, 1 Peter 4 and 11, real quick. Here, here's what Peter says. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. This might be my favorite scripture amongst a thousand favorite scriptures. If anyone serves, if anyone serves, this is what we do. Let it be from the strength God provides. Why? So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. If you do it in your strength, God gets no glory. There's a blessing in, in, in weakness. Paul is like, this, this thing, this thorn in my flesh, I can't get rid of it. We don't know what the thorn is. We don't know if it's a physical malady. We don't know if it's emotional. We don't know if it's mental. We don't know what Paul is going through. But there's something that has been bothering the apostle Paul. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, here's what he says. Each time he said... My grace is all you need. My power works best in what? Weakness. Why? So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. Paul, it gets even crazier. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. Have you praised God for being weak before? And in the insults, in the hardship, in the persecution, and troubles that I suffer for Christ, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
there is an inherent blessing when the Christian is weak. I don't know who's here today. Maybe you felt weak. Maybe you feel weak. Maybe you feel weak. Maybe, maybe you feel vulnerable. Maybe you're struggling right now. Maybe you feel feeble. Maybe you feel doubtful. Maybe you feel fragile. Maybe you feel inept to do whatever God is calling you. But here's what I want you to know today. God supplies what you lack. If you're weak today, you are in the perfect position to receive the power of God. God's strength is manifested in our weakness. Don't despise weakness. If you've ever said, this is too much for me, this is too hard for me, I can't keep living this life, it's too much temptation out here. I keep struggling with this same old stuff over and over again. I can't keep living for Jesus. I'm about to cuss somebody slap out. I'm about to lose my mind. I am about to slap somebody. I'm about to go all the way off. I'm about to jump completely out the window. If you feel like that, God says, step back. Let my power work in that weakness. Not so that you can be glorified, but so that I can be glorified. If you're weak today, I got good news. God's power is perfected in your weakness. There's a blessing if you feel weak today. If you're weak in your body, there's a blessing in that. If you're weak in your emotions, there's a blessing in that. I want to let you know today that God's strength is waiting for you to step back and let him step in. Yeah. In spite of that little power that they had, they possess this grace, this strength to do two things. Here's what it says that they did. He says, here's why I'm going to open this door for you. Two reasons. Number one, look at the text. You kept my word and you didn't deny my name. They kept the word of Christ. They, they, they obeyed Jesus. You know, it's one thing to read the Bible, but the Bible says doesn't, it doesn't say blessed are those who hear the word of God. It says blessed are the hearers and the doers of his word. There, there is a blessing in our obedience. That's not to say that obedience is hard, but I just told you God's power is perfected in our weakness. If you have problems obeying, God says my, my, my power is sufficient for your weakness. Maybe you haven't come into the reality that in your struggle with sin, your struggle with your job, your struggle with your finances, that, that the power of God is available to you to obey God even in the midst of a hard circumstance. They, they kept his word. And secondly... They didn't deny his name. They were loyal. You know, everybody in the culture today talks about, I'm so, I can't stand the word loyal. I want my friends to be loyal. I want somebody loyal. God does too. Now let me turn this around on you. You expect loyalty in your relationships So shouldn't God have the right to expect loyalty too? See, loyalty goes both ways. You you can't not be loyal and expect loyalty. And let me tell you something. God is the most loyal person you will ever meet in your life. They were loyal. They didn't compromise. They They didn't conform to the culture. They didn't care what they lost or if it cost them their life. They didn't capitulate. They didn't conform. They didn't compromise. They didn't turn their back on their allegiance to Christ. And here's what he's saying to them. Here's why he opened the door 
to them. Here's why, why Jesus opens the door that nobody can close. Here's what he's saying. When he says, you kept my word, you didn't deny my name, all he's saying is this, you've been faithful. God is not looking for perfection. God is looking for faithfulness. This is what faithfulness looks like, keeping his word and not denying his name. They kept his word, and they kept on professing his name even when it wasn't cool. Let me tell you something. If you're struggling with faithfulness, faithfulness ain't something we got to muster up as Christians. I just got to muster up some faithfulness. It's in our spiritual DNA. If you've been born again, faithfulness is in your DNA. You have the, you have the capacity to be faithful to God. Not because of anything about you, because of everything about him. We, when, we, when we were born again, we were reimagined. We, we were remade in his image. We have his characteristics. If we belong to him, we have been redeemed by the spirit and we have what he has. And let me tell you something about God. God, if there's one thing that God uses to describe himself in one word, it's faithful. Let me read this to you. Exodus 34, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. Here's what God says about himself. This is his self-description. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Meaning he doesn't run out of it. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, most people get hung up there. Let's do some math. We do a lot of math here. He says, I maintain my love to how many generations? Thousands. Iniquity goes to the third and fourth generations. This is just meant to show us the comparison how three or four, four generations ain't nothing. The punishment is nothing when you compare it to his faithful love. And when he says thousands, he don't mean a literal thousand. He means forever. Third and fourth generations of punishment versus eternal faithful love. You can be faithful because God is faithful. You know what Jeremiah says in Lamentations? He, he says his mercies are new and, and every morning and never ending. And then what does he, he exclaim, great is your faithfulness. God, God is faithful. You, you can be faithful because God is faithful. You derive your faithfulness from God's faithfulness. Not, not only does God open doors for the faithful, God also, second point, preserves the faithful. We'll go through this real quick. 9 through 11. Let me just read this. And then we're going to get to the end. Read this. Let's read 9 through 11 real quick. He says, note this, because anytime God opens a door, guess what's the first thing you can expect? Opposition. Here's what he says. Note this. I'll make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and they'll know that I've loved you because you've kept my command to endure. I'll also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Two things he's doing here. He's saying in spite of the, the 
opposition there. There's opposition there in Philadelphia. There's a, 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 a strong Jewish population. And what happens whenever the gospel is brought into a new city, the first place typically that they go would be the synagogue, right? And, and so what happens is the Jewish people are looking at the Christians like they're crazy because they don't believe that Jesus is Messiah. This causes all kind of friction. And so the Jewish community wants to keep their special status and protection from Rome. And so therefore they're saying, hey, these Christians are not like us. Y'all can get them and persecute them. Here's the interesting thing. Th- th- this doesn't mean that we should be uh, anti-Semitic. Here's what this means. That Early on, if you look at the New Testament, the the nation, the people that God chose to give the word to was the Jews. And he told the Jews this, I'm going to use you. I picked you not because you're special, not because you're better than anybody, because I just love you. It's the favor of God. I picked you to mediate my blessings to the rest of the nations. But since you won't obey, the nations have received what I've given them. Now the nations are going to be the ones to mediate my blessings back to you. And he's saying to the Christians, it's hard right now, but no matter how hard it is and no matter how much vindication or no matter how much opposition, I'm going to vindicate you, but I'm also going to protect you. Last point I'll make about this. This hour testing has happened. Most scholars argue, and this is where the whole rapture theology, stay with me. This is where the whole rapture theology comes into play. Um, there's going to be a period of testing. The Bible is clear about this. This is going to be this future judgment. There's going to be a period of unprecedented testing for the world. It's going to be real tough, tougher than any uh, apocalyptic end of the world movie you've ever saw. Independence Day, Apocalypse Now. Whatever movie you've seen where the end of the world and rocks are falling and there's just one family and they're holed up in a cave and the world is coming to the end and they're trying to hold up. He's saying it's going to be a million times worse than that. He says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing when this time comes. And if you don't believe me, this period is called the Great Tribulation. It's in your Bible. If you want to read on your own time, Matthew 24 or read Daniel 12, it talks about the Great Tribulation. It's time of severe testing that's going to come on the world. It's going to be really bad. And here's what the problem is. Some believe that God is going to come down and rapture the church before the period of testing and that the church won't have to deal with it. They think that this is what this means, that there will be a rapture before the testing. The church will be lifted up. Everybody else got to duke it out with God and they're going to lose. But we'll be kept safe from this. What I believe is a different interpretation from my research and my study what he's saying is, it's not that I'm going to keep you from, the, from, the, from, the, uh, from this tribulation, but I'm going to protect you and preserve you while it's happening. That we will be raptured up at some point, but not before this period of great testing. And here's what he's saying. Whether you live or die, I got you. If you trust in me, even if you die, as Paul says, that means gain. That, that, that even if you survive, I got you, I protect you no matter what happens, nobody will snatch you out of my hand. He's making this promise to the church at Philadelphia that I'm going to not only vindicate you, but I'm going to protect you. Just hold on to what you have. And that sounds like, oh, that's anticlimactic. So I'm just going to hold on. What do I, what's the with them? What's in it for me? God rewards the faithful. 
I want to tell you this, church. You follow a suffering yet victorious Messiah that has defeated every enemy through the cross. He's defeated sin and death. That when he got out of the grave, for those who trust in him, we got, of it, got out of it with him. That no matter what happens, our suffering leads to glory. And this is what he's talking about in 12 through 13. Let's read this together and then we'll be out, I'll be out of your way. It says, to the one who conquers, I will make a pillar, highlight pillar in the temple of my God. And he will never go out again. He's talking about the believer. He says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. He'll never go out again. I write on him the name of my God and on the name city of my God. We're going to all be tatted up in heaven. (laughs) Which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name. Remember I told you what happened in Philadelphia? That they were on a fault line? What happens on a fault line? Earthquakes. But when you think about a pillar, what do you think about? Something strong, stable, immovable. Something steady. And he's saying in spite of what's happening around you, you will never be moved. Nothing will be able to knock you over. You're going to be a temple, a mainstay. Where? In the temple of my God. In God's presence. It will be uninterrupted. No one will ever be able to move you out of the way. But you got to endure now. That you, you, my name will be on you. The name of my God will be on you. The name of the city of my God will be on you. You will be my possession We'll live together in the new heavens, in the new earth, what they call New Jerusalem. So you think we're just going to go up to heaven one day and we're just going to be in heaven and the earth is going to be obliterated. That's not what's going to happen. We go up. (laughs) Then we come back down. And God is going to restore and redeem paradise that was lost in the garden. And so when Revelation tells you there will be no more sadness, no more sickness, no more mourning, no more crying, he's painting a picture of us of the world the way it intended to be. But in the meantime, your job is to win as many people possible while we wait on his return. Right? And and so I want to read this to you. What Michael Gorman says in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, he has this beautiful quote that, quote that describes the new heaven and new earth. The culture of the beast has been replaced by the culture of the lamb. A culture of death by a culture of life. A culture of insecurity and fear by a culture of peace and trust. The new heaven, new earth, and new city are not therefore some kind of ethereal miss but it's going to be very real and because we live in a fallen world if we don't tether ourselves to the word of God this will seem like an impossibility but it is as real as it is right now that there will come a day where we will have to battle no more sound like a broken record but we have to be reminded that this struggle with sin that we have has an expiration date. A 
Imagine a world where we never have to lock our doors ever again. You never have to worry about anybody ever stealing anything from you. This world of distractions that distract us and keep us from God's presence. No more. I mentioned a couple weeks back, the next time you drive by a hospital, be reminded that even the institution of hospitals has an expiration date. Because one day they will be obsolete. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. There will be no more murders. No children will ever be touched inappropriately ever again. Cancer will cease to exist. Nobody will have a heart attack ever again. There will be no more funerals for us to go to. Nobody will ever have to be buried again. We will all live in the presence of God for eternity. But there's only one way that that happens. For the Christian, is if we endure. And for the unbeliever, is if you walk through the door that Christ has opened for us. Last two things I'll read for you and I'm done. If you're a believer, if you're an unbeliever here today, you're not, not a Christian, it's fine, we, we love you. I want to read First, first John chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what John says. If we confess our sins, guess what? <laughs> he is faithful <laughs> and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from not a little bit of unrighteousness, but all of it. And if you feel weak, you, you come into that reality, you know your sins are forgiven. That you've been made new. If you struggle, here's a promise from God that Paul gives to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. This saying is trustworthy. For if we die with him, we'll also live with him. And if we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Here's his beauty again. If we are faithless, hallelujah, he remains (laughs) faithful. For he cannot deny himself. There's a blessing in being faithful. God has called us to faithfulness today. God opens doors for the faithful people. If you've been looking for God to open a door for you, maybe you need to transform why you want a door to be open for you. And let that be a motivation for open doors. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.